I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everyone start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the greatest way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm speaking to the queen of nut butter, Pippa Murray, founder of Pippa Nut. As a runner, Pip was always on the lookout for delicious things to eat before heading out into the great outdoors. And as a firm believer that food should be super tasty, yet packed with nutrients and energy, she began making her own nut butters from her kitchen table. But before long, Pippa was selling Pippa Nut from her market stand in London, and her small-scale production just couldn't fill the demand. She launched her first nut butter on the shelves of Selfridges in January 2015, And after receiving investment, she scaled her business to what it is today, being stocked in over 5,000 stores around the UK and Europe. I had such a lovely conversation with Pip, who just couldn't have been more open, helpful and inspiring with her advice. Wanting to share her knowledge and her experience in scaling from the kitchen table to being one of the most recognised nut butter brands in the UK. I know this episode will really be so useful to anyone dreaming of starting up their own food and drink business, especially those future female founders who can look at Pip's journey and just be inspired to start theirs. Hi Pip, thank you so much for having me here today at Peanut HQ. My family and I are obsessed with your peanut butter, especially when I'm cooking brekkie for a group of teenage boys. Thank you for being here today on Conversations <laughs> of Inspiration in your beautiful building and old sewing. Yeah, old sewing factory. So yeah, all the lights that you can see above you in the tiles and the walls are originals, which yeah, I love it. It adds an extra layer of charm. Yeah, I love that. I'm all about bringing back the old into new businesses. Mm. I think it gives you just such a character. Holly mm. & Co, we've got mosaic tiles, we've got the old sign painted yeah. um, shop front and I think there's, there's something, isn't there, yeah. in literally the walls yeah. that's keeping you going all these women that used to be here probably yeah. sewing away so female power probably is totally. in the walls and I just thought, you know when you walk into a space I think I've seen so many different spaces than this one I was just like yeah I can just so visualize us here so you know it's really open plan it's bright and colorful like cool warehouse windows suits me down to a tea it does actually I'm looking at you with the cool <laughs> window behind you it really does suit you so first of all I'd love to start with your story mm. your background and how you came about founding your business Pippa Nut mm. yeah it's a funny one because I when I started start Pippa Nut or when I first had that big kind of inkling of the idea I was working as a theatre producer at the Science Museum um, in South Kensington and I'd worked in like the arts for my whole but quite short career up until that point and studied the arts at university, anthropology. And, you know, I, I genuinely can say I'd never even thought that running a business was something I'd do. My parents are, a, my dad's a doctor, my mum's a nurse, like all public sector. Yeah, like going to the dark side was just not something that was in my <laughs> blood or at least didn't think it was. But I think for me, what like started getting me on this road was that firstly... I am a proper nut butter addict. I, I genuinely eat it every day still, which I think for a lot of food and drink founders, there aren't that many, I think, that still say that they eat their products after five years of having it. It's just such a brilliant product. It's so yummy, delicious, um, really quite addictive, but it's nutritionally really good for you. So you've got this great balance of health and indulgence. But what stars me was, at the time... I wasn't really finding my job hugely fulfilling. And I'm, I've always been like really determined as a person, quite independent, really quite headstrong. And, 
You know, I've always loved food. I grew up in a large family. I've got three older sisters, um, quite a big gaggle of girls. And, you know, I used to cook for my family all the time. Every week I'd be in the kitchen for cooking for my whole family. And I think for me, it's been something that's run through me as like a thread of interest. But there was something about the way that I think I was in my early 20s at the time and I started noticing a lot of kind of food brands popping up and gone to Whole Foods and sort of started to look at the store and I was like, there are some incredible brands out here. And I think for me, it was about landing on a product which I was like, I was picking up being, like, eating a lot of nut butter at the time, I was training for a marathon and I was like, a lot of the brands on the shelves that I was picking up had palm oil in and a lot of them had refined sugars and I just felt like there was an opportunity in this product, something for that like, could have been a lot simpler and I think I'd, I'd also done quite a lot of, like, looking... I'd been travelling in the US and noticed out there that there were a lot of brands that were creating lots of new flavours and things like almond butter, which wasn't really in the UK at the time, you know, was massive out there. And I was like, why are they, these, like, amazing products not in the UK? I think it was, like, a number of things that started to, like, click into place. And it gets under your skin. And after a while, I guess I'm the sort of person that always... I'm kind of a risk-averse person. I thought, well, what's the worst that can happen? Like, I can start making this in my evenings and weekends and kind of felt like I'll, I'll give it a, a go. Um, so, yeah, so it's, I guess, a love of the product, um, seeing a bit of an opportunity in the category, but also just seeing, like, the landscape of food and drink and how health brands and healthier brands were really starting to, and independent brands, getting into mainstream supermarkets. I was like, this is really cool that you could have a business creating products that people then eat in their kitchen. And so did you literally start in the kitchen? Yeah. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a cook, so just tell <laughs> me. So you started making this for your family, did you? <laughs> yeah, so I was living in a flat with some friends in um, North London, two other girls, and I literally bought a, a blender, like a fancy robo-coop, and started making the products. And what's the beauty of nut butter is that it's not hugely complicated. I shouldn't really admit this. It's not hugely complicated to make it, especially at home. So, you know, it was simply a case of getting a load of different ingredients and playing around with stuff. It's quite funny because I think, I'm sure you've been through the stage where, you know, I, I initially started selling at market. So I sent, spent three months at Maltby Street Market where I'd make a batch of 200 jars and I'd take them down to Maltby Street in Bermondsey in London to kind of trial it. But in the interim, it'd be like stacks of jars in my in my like front room and labels <laughs> in the bathroom, and stuff in the living room yeah and the, the whole house smell of peanuts <laughs> like it's quite a strong smell so I just felt so sorry for my friends but yeah I literally started in my kitchen and, and played around with things that I thought would be interesting flavor profiles I mentioned before we started recording that our coconut almond butter was one that I created in my kitchen and it was inspired by a macaroon because I was like you know almonds and coconut it's just a perfect flavor combo so how could I make that into a product so that was how that one came to life. I think what I find so inspiring about your story is that you were working at homemade nut butters, which you, as you said, made in your blender at your kitchen table, to now selling, uh, is it 5,000 shops across the UK? Yep. And now it's one of the fastest growing nut butters in the UK. And by 2020, you want to hit retail sales of 25 million. Mm. Is that right? Yeah, we're on that path. Your huge ambition. I know there's going to be a lot of small businesses listening and those dreaming of starting their own small food or drink mm. business. And I know there's really limited advice out there, actually, yeah. the real stuff. So I'd love to use this interview just now and again to touch on what those pieces are. Yeah. Because you knew that you wanted to scale so what was the, from the market stall to finding your first manufacturer, what was that journey like? So I spent two years setting up the business before I officially launched. And the market testing, which was at a market, I kind of include into that time frame of setup. And the first two years of set, like that, that period is just so hard. And I, I really feel for people that are in that stage where they've got a concept and they're trying to work out how to scale it. And I think the reason why I find it so hard is that you don't know whether you can make a viable business. It, you know, you're so reliant on other people at that point. And so making something in your kitchen, that's the first stage. And, and it is the easiest point. You've got control of it over every aspect. And I, I think when you're starting to look at scaling, and I guess the first thing you've got to work out is how you're going to make it. So the manufacturing element is 
the most important thing that you've got to deal with at that stage. Forget the branding, forget any thought of investment. You just need to know whether or not you can make a product that is commercially viable, that works for everyone along the way. And it will be the hardest thing that you do when it comes to a food and drink product. And I think the thing that makes it hard is that manufacturers don't advertise themselves. They don't really want to work with a startup because you're high risk, low volume, really unexciting. But the only thing that makes it exciting for them is the fact that you make a fun product and that you are fun to work with and and that's the thing that you've got to sell both the vision but also the ease of working with you the 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 journey that they could be on with you and you know you've got to have a huge amount of belief in yourself and your vision what you can deliver without also being arrogant um so mm -hmm. it's like fine balance I think <clears throat> but finding a manufacturer is a bit like a needle in a haystack and to reassure anyone now, like in the same way that when we launch new products and we find new factories for those, it's the same approach. It's still as hard. So, you know, it doesn't really get easier. It doesn't get way, easier. You don't have this golden book that's then now no, given to you. There isn't like them. a black book that I have access to, sadly. But, I mean, the best way to go about doing it is, is really, firstly, build your network as hard as you can. Go to as many trade events and trade fairs as you possibly can and use what you have available to you. The internet is a great thing. There are lots of kind of random long lists of factories that you can approach. But I think the most important thing when you're looking for a partner, and I chose the route of outsourcing my manufacturing to another factory, is to make sure that they genuinely believe in what you're doing because... You know, I've had the experience of working with factories that either block you or stifle your growth or, you know, you don't trust them with your products. And I think you've really got to vet them and, and feel that you've got a level of rapport. And I think you can get that quite quickly, even from the first couple of meetings that you've got with them. And if there's an inkling of doubt, just don't bother. Just step away from it. Because it will... they've got control, haven't they, yeah. really, of your destiny. Yeah. On, on Conversations of Inspiration, I've been lucky enough to interview Julie Dean from Cambridge Satchel Company, yeah. where they actually started ripping off her bags yeah. in the actual same workshop that they're making her own. Um, and she had to literally drive down there and take all the leather back and ask yeah. people to join her, to Richard Reed with Innocent and how finding that manufacturer that was able to handle the fruits the way that they wanted it to yeah. be it, it's such a integral part they're part of the business has it been do you think easier now that there are more smaller brands with more exciting concepts coming through that manufacturers are a bit more open to that journey rather than I can imagine 10 20 years ago yeah I definitely think that they're more receptive for sure I think you still have to prove yourself but I think what's interesting, actually, slightly less about the manufacturers, but actually more actually with supermarkets, that they are so much more open for small brands to come through. And I think that then kind of filters down to the factories that they understand that the future of a lot of these supermarkets is that they need to bring in independent brands because they've got to differentiate themselves from the discounters like Aldi and Lidl who are selling all the brands that they're stocking in their retailers. But yeah, I think manufacturers... You can get. There are more cropping up that I think that when you have the conversation, they don't just laugh at you, in, in laugh you out the door. Basically, <laughs> I think it's just finding the the factories that are the right size for you. Like, don't necessarily go to the biggest, most slickest factory because they're unlikely to want to work with you. Just find someone that's at the right stage, and then you can grow with them. And there's also something really lovely about yeah. you knowing that you're having an impact on their, on their business, business as and well it's, you so know, it's mutually beneficial totally that's quite good that's a, a nice tip actually to mm. to look for businesses that might need you as much as uh you need them totally. and tell me you then had your first order from Selfridges yeah how did you get stocked there obviously it's like this you know holy grail of a of a of a food <laughs> hall to be stocked into how did you grab that buyer's attention so that actually did come about through when I was doing my like testing of all my products, I did various different markets and kind of, you know, little events, anything that I could come across to basically get in front of people to try and get feedback. And I happened to do this one with a, um, I was running, doing a startup school at the time, like, and we did a, a kind of mini trade event, trade show. And the Selfridges buyer walked past and happened to be at the event and, and tasted the product and then emailed me later. And funnily enough, also later down the line, I did a crowdfunding on a Crowdcube and the same thing happened again. The Selfridges buyer or a different buyer emailed me. So great thing about Selfridges is that they really do have their finger on the pulse. They are definitely one for kind of spotting brands that are kind of up and coming. So, And I think that's where that 
that premise of getting out the door as early as you can to talk to people, even if it's with a product that isn't quite fully finished or, you know, the branding isn't perfect on it, get the product out and, and get speaking to people because you'll get these weird moments where I happen to have the Selfridges buy a wander pass and taste the product and think, yeah, I really want to have a conversation with this woman. And it can lead to your first listing. So... I think the more you keep it in your head and like kind of protect it in and you know don't tell too many people or try and keep it under wraps it's actually in some and not necessarily for every business but at least for food and drink I think it's a really good thing to be like out there as early as possible because you know someone might steal your idea but you've just got to have faith that you'll do it better and it will happen whether or not it lays down the line anyway. That's such a good point because I do think you have this element of and I I certainly had it you know keeping it close close until it's pitch perfect and also founders you know there's a slight issue in the DNA of perfectionism and so um, it's about actually the community will build it with you they'll give you that feedback that you would never have thought of Mm. or um, you're going down a route that actually they're not buying. Yeah. But we do have that tendency to keep everything quite close. And you're saying get out there because the Selfridges buyer might just walk past you. Totally. Yeah, and you really can't even predict those moments. And that's the thing. Like That is the beauty. I mean, I do think that luck, you make your own luck in that saying. But... Like, you have to be out there in it to win it. So, And, I, and that was a classic example of, of just that. When did you take that first leap of leaving your job. And I read that Escape the City played an integral part for you quitting your day job. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I did go part-time with my job to start working alongside kind of setting up the business. So I was doing three days at the Science Museum and two days on my own thing, or the other four days, really. But I had a funny way of giving up my job. So I didn't really have any savings. I was doing the whole startup on on a bootstrap like most people do. But I did have a bit of, for me... I've lived in London now 12 years and I love it. It's like all my friends, my family are here. My parents live out of London. And for me, I just couldn't, didn't want to move home. Not because I don't like my parents, but more that for me, it was important for my personal identity. And so I randomly got this message from one of my friends who sent me a link to an Escape the City competition. So Escape the City are basically a kind of a job site, website, and they help people leave the city and start in new businesses like startups and they were running this kind of um, competition which was called Escape to the Shed and it was essentially a shed that they'd built in their back garden of their HQ in sort of South London which they were offering one lucky startup to live in for three months to kind of set up and launch their business from. So I, I, applied, I applied for it on a complete and utter whim like genuinely was like ah oh, it just doesn't really matter I won't win it or I'm not even sure if anything will come off the back of it. And it ended up, a couple months down the line, the co-founder of Escape City called me up to say that I'd won the competition and that I could go and move into the shed whenever I wanted to. And it was, I was outside, literally outside the science museum, and I remember at that moment being like, oh my God, I'm going to have to go and do that now. And um, <laughs> I actually quit my job an hour later, because I was like, great, I'll quit my job, I'll have no overheads for three months, I'll give it three months of hard graft, because uh, at this point I'd gone, done about a year before that, and if I can't get it off the ground by then, I'll have to kind of call it a day. So I went and moved in, spent three months living like a feral cat in their back garden, and um during that time did a, a crowdfunding campaign and that's what kind of gave me the capital. So, I mean, honestly, it was one of the weirdest things and I think my mum genuinely thought I was un- you lost completely it. mad. But it was, you know, a moment for me to be able to kind of give it full focus. So I, I just know. think it's brilliant. I read <laughs> really about random. the Escape the City shed at the time and remember thinking, what a clever, clever, mm. for both parties, what a yeah. clever idea that was. And a few years down the line, I'm sitting actually opposite the winner there. And I do really <laughs> yeah. remember thinking that. So I think Rob and Dom from Escape the City, very well done. Yeah. I can also imagine that the hardest challenges for you and for small businesses is completely competing with big brands right in supermarkets or in stores and this ability to take risk Mm. because you haven't got the cash flow you haven't got those marketing budgets I'm sure the most exciting moments are when those supermarkets within your industry call Mm. and say I want to stock your product and now you've got to go I've got to scale up. Tell me how that first transition happened. Mm. So Selfridges, was that one of your first or? So Selfridges was our first customer, but at that stage, 
you know, they're quite small. And we were, you know, we spent the first six months of our business sort of building relatively slowly through the wholesale kind of channels and through all the beautiful delis and independent stores in London, quite deliberately in that sense. But the, that moment which you're describing just then, Sainsbury's was our big yep. moment. So we won them about eight months after launching the brand I, I remember the moment when we won that listing and I almost fell off my seat because I it was like ecstatic we won 400 stores and um, four SKUs four lines went in and then complete and utter dread as I was like how am I going to afford this because at that point we were buying stock pretty much up front so therefore we were having to buy all the stock for the stores to fill the shelves and more and being like, this is going to, I don't know how we're going to do this. And um, I'm assuming you're doing that thing, which, you know, for anyone who's trying to raise money or, you know, you're definitely not telling anyone that um, you can't afford to actually fulfill the order that they might be placing with you. Exactly. Yeah? You've had yeah. to fake it a little bit yes. to win. Yes. Sort of like uncomfortable, like squeaky bum time, basically. But yeah, I mean, it, obviously... The cautious side of me is like probably would say to anyone, don't overstretch, don't grow too fast. But in moments like that, you've got to, you know, it was our first supermarket. We we had to try and make it work, and I, I do remember the f- the first order for that left our bank balance with literally pounds left in the bank, and you had to then quickly bring it back. So yeah, it was a really uncomfortable moment. But I, I would say that it, you know part of it is about you get the backing and support from say the bank or investors by almost having that growth. So it's a good problem to have. But yeah, you have to be really mindful particularly a couple of years ago we had to be really careful about making sure that when we were winning those retailers which are it's amazing when you get Sainsbury's or Tesco on board but that the deal was genuinely something that was sustainable and I'd say that you can probably make it work whatever happens when you've got a new listing but you've got to make sure that all the financials stack up that you're doing it for the right margins and you're not over committing yourself for the long term we have walked away from deals with you know some of the big retailers because we just knew it wasn't going to work for us and it's really heart-wrenching because you're like oh I just know this I really want to be in that supermarket it's it's important for our growth but it's it's a tough decision to walk away but you know in the long term you it's a good thing and then it'll probably come around a couple of years later which is what ended up happening so make sure that at least if you're doing it it's sustainable because it's a, a really slippery slope and in a lot of small businesses listening or who have been maybe contacted by larger businesses, one of the classic tales is the payment terms. Yeah. You know, did you manage that right up front? You were left with a pound and then you had costs. So what happened there? Well, there is like clever things with like supermarkets. So a lot of them offer really cheap invoice factoring, which basically allows you to sell your invoices pretty much straight away. So essentially the money comes right back into your bank account. You can sell 90% of their invoice and it comes in. And there are some really cheap ways of doing that via the supermarkets. Um, basically the banks secure it off their balance sheet, not your balance sheet. Okay. So it's super okay. cheap. And it's something you often have to actually ask the supermarket buyer for. So they'll... And it'll be their partner that delivers that for you. So, yeah, and, that, and those are the sorts of things which are, unless someone tells you about them, their yes. buyers will not tell you about it. Not necessarily because I don't think they want you to know about it, but more that maybe they just don't have experience of working with a smaller brand. And that's not maybe as important to say larger businesses. So that's another great tip. Yeah, so that so you, you can actually secure, yeah, you can ask the buyer. Yeah. But then you did raise some money, didn't you? Yeah. You 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 did an incredible job actually. You raised through Crowdcube. Yeah. And am I right in thinking you raised 120,000 in 9 days? Yes, that's right. That's great. Yeah. Did it take your all to do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean so I raised that pre-revenue, so that was before we'd launched officially into Selfridges. And I remember actually, like it was six months before that, that I started to think, okay, I'm probably going to need some money for our first order and for a few months after that. And that was what that initial capital was for. And I went out and pitched to loads of individuals and angels and kind of tried to use whatever kind of small network I had to kind of leverage. And honestly, I just got so many like no's. I mean, I was a new entrepreneur. I'd never worked in food and drink. You know, I didn't really know what I was talking about. But I did have a really great product and brand. But, I mean, it wasn't really enough for someone to say, like, yeah, I'll give you that 100 grand. So I turned to Crowdcube as a real, like, last resort and, and used it to kind of push, like, anyone that maybe said, maybe I'll give you some money, maybe five grand rather than 100. And I just pushed them all to that platform. The reason why it funded so quickly is because they all chucked the money in right at the start. But there was that moment when... 
Yeah, and, and I think crowdfunding is uh, I have a huge respect for people that do it because it is really exposing. Unlike when you're going to individuals, like you don't need to tell anyone if someone said no to you. But on crowdfunding, it's so blatantly obvious <laughs> if it's not successful. And I remember the first few days we got 30k into the business and then it went quiet for a few days and I remember people stopped wanting to talk to me because it was almost like the awkward thing of the like cringing oh of, god oh, she's, she's not gonna do it she's failing exactly. right in, in everyone's view exactly I don't know what to say to her and I remember being like please talk to, please talk to me um but then it swung and it and we got the money in so it was it was it was great and and it was super quick and I and I, I recommend it for early stage entrepreneurs who have a a, a concept or even a, a proven concept but haven't necessarily got the traction yet. And and what's great about it is we brought on 80 investors into the business, but they're really light touch and they don't ask you for board meetings and minutes and all this stuff. So you can just crack on with it yeah. and just get on with what you, you need to do and, and not be kind of swayed to kind of go in a different direction. Which... So it's that stepping stone, isn't totally. it? Totally. Because then last year you took on investment of just over a million pounds, yeah. I believe, and you took the business to that next level. And it's seriously phenomenal especially when a recent study looking at startups led by female founders showed that just 118 million of funding in 2018 was secured by women out of a pot of 7 billion raised, mm. which means that female founders secured 1.6% of that £7 billion pot. It's incredible. And I wanted to touch on this with you, what it was like raising money the two different ways. And what advice would you give for people? Yeah, because they are really different. And neither option is necessarily easy. But I think the thing that I, when you're doing it through high net worth or, you know, more institutional money is that I think the level of information that they require is so much greater than say someone on a crowdfunding platform might might need and I think that's what's really quite difficult is the kind of persuasion that you have to have behind what your business plan is and I think it just takes a lot more in terms of preparation of like what exactly you're going to deliver and you have to have real confidence that in your plan that that million is going to take you to you know the next three years that's the sort of thing which can be hugely time intensive and you have to meet a lot of people when you're going out to individuals because a lot of them won't be interested. And I think more from a psychological perspective, I would say that going out, particularly once you've already got a proven brand and product, it can be really like tough on you because you might go into the room thinking that you've got an absolutely incredible brand. Like Why would anyone not want to be involved in it in some way or form? And then they'll say that they don't see the value. And it can be it can really knock you for 10. I think as a founder, one of the main things you need to have is belief and that optimism and enthusiasm to continue to drive forward. So if that gets knocked, it can be really tough. And it takes you away from your day-to-day. -day. Like, you know, I love the stuff that we're doing every day, but fundraising isn't my favourite activity. I'd much rather be, you know, working with a factory to develop a new product or working on, you know pretty much anything else apart from that but I know it's a really important part of the job I always find it difficult stepping away from like actually working on the brand rather than raising money for it it's interesting I raised five rounds of funding at Norton High Street and every round 100% nearly killed me and I would tell people that because they didn't quite understand and I say raising money is as stressful as divorce, yeah. as moving house. You know that list of the most stressful things humans could go yeah. through? I would definitely put it in the mm. top four things. And if only 1.6% of the money now goes to women, back then I'm thinking about what would be the percentage in 2006 and seven, like 0.0001%. But, you know, at the same time, it was seriously stressful, but we wouldn't have been able to scale as we did. And in the early days, the first investors were fantastic investors. A gentleman called Tom Teichman, he took a chance on us. He took a chance on Sophie and I, and I'm still very good friends with him now. And it made me think when coming to see you today, I was um, walking along the river the other day and I bumped into somebody, a small food producer, and she was actually listening to the conversations of inspiration it's one of those bizarre wow. moments and she took out her headphones and she said is that you Holly and I said yes anyway she just literally was walking to a meeting where she was about to be a week away I would say from signing for with an investor and she just said I think the universe basically made us meet because she just said 
He's asking me things like, why did I become pregnant? He's asking Mm. me things that basically they're going to have such control from day one. And we're only two years into our business. And I just took that moment to say, you know, when you take money, it's like a marriage. And that's actually what Tom said to me um, in the early days. Do remember our relationship as an investor lasts longer than the average marriage. Make sure you want to walk down the aisle with me. Taking on other people into your business, just like when you take a member of staff on, Mm. it can change the course of where you're going or that sliding doors moment. How do you feel about taking on external people onto this journey and has it been a difficult a difficult choice and decision for yourself firstly that statistic I find soul destroying like it's it is unbelievable that you know just over one percent of the funding is it goes towards women and I, I wholeheartedly believe that that should shift and will shift over the next few years but it's depressing that that's where it's at now but yeah I think you're right it's it is a really close relationship that you have. And I, we have actually been very fortunate, or I've been very fortunate with who has been involved in the business. Um, our main investor is a guy called Giles Brooke, and he he runs Vitacoco in um, UK and Europe and Middle East, as well as a, a number of other kind of businesses. And he has been an amazing mentor to me, basically. He, he actually started out as an advisor to the business and kind of more of a mentor. And then, you know, we got to know each other and, and eventually he invested. And I, I'd, I was very fortunate, I think, to be able to actually get to know his way of working and work out if it was the way I also wanted to work and vice versa for him, I think, as well. And I think that's where sometimes when you can force it a bit too much when you're meeting people and just trying to make it work, it's the same when you're dating someone and you don't, you're not really that into them. It just it won't work out well. So I think... And what I've liked about Giles is that... Um, He's already run and scaled from a small small businesses, and he knows that growth journey. I also love the fact that I can be quite honest with him. So when things are going a little bit pear shaped, that he doesn't respond in a way that's disappointed or gets angry in any way. He's actually very supportive and kind of is like tries to dust you off and put you back up on your seat again. So he because he's been through it, and I think that working with particularly if it's earlier stage investment working with people that have been there done that they just have a totally different perspective and that's what you need because it's never going to go all to plan like there'll always be something that kind of gets in your way and and you think it might be over but if you can have someone that you can be honest with I think it really helps and he's been really supportive in that sense. If you can find those early stage investors that have that paternal or maternal feel yeah and it's vital isn't it if you could find people with money and that protective feel or the experience because then it's more than just a pound coin that they're putting in the business it's actually true advice or true care so it's one to look out for Each week on Conversations of Inspiration, we're running a competition with our partner, NatWest, where if you are a small business or independent, you are in with a chance to win this very ad break coming up. A free advert to showcase your business to hundreds of thousands of listeners, thanks to NatWest's generosity. This week's winner of our ad break is not corn. Over to you. Hi, my name is Rashina and I'm the founder of Notcorn. Notcorn is set to absolutely revolutionise the snack food category. Notcorn is a healthy snack alternative, so where popcorn uses corn kernels, we pop an ancient Indian African grain called sorghum. And sorghum is set to be the next big superfood, according to Women's Health magazine. Notcorn is really innovative in three key ways. Firstly, it's an absolute nutritional powerhouse. It's high in fibre, it's gluten-free and vegan. And on top of that, where popcorn is essentially empty calories, Notcorn is actively good for you and has many of the micronutrients like vitamin B12 that other snacks do not have. Secondly, harvesting the sorghum grain uses a staggering 50% less water to harvest versus corn, helping to promote sustainability. And lastly, Notcorn doesn't contain any hulls, the really annoying bits in popcorn that get stuck in your teeth. I started this business after I saw my aunt popping the sorghum grain in her kitchen. She told me about its amazing health benefits, but I didn't believe her as she often told me loads of wives' tales. I sent the grain for nutritional testing and the results were absolutely extraordinary. I began creating it in my kitchen at home and then quickly realised that I wasn't able to fulfil some of the larger orders on my own. 
It was then that I decided to quit my corporate job at Procter & Gamble and do this full time. I thought to myself, if I don't do this now, I'll always regret it. The business has since grown organically without any investment to date, and we're now stocked in a number of stores, including Planet Organic and Whole Foods. And top secret, we'll also be launching a Nicardo in a couple of weeks. You heard it here first. The business has also won a number of awards, including being voted the best gluten-free snack company by Greater London Enterprise. And we were also a finalist in the NatWest Great British Entrepreneur Awards. We have lots and lots of exciting news and announcements coming very soon. So for more information and to keep up to date, please visit us on our website at notcorn.co.uk and follow us on social media. I really, really hope that you enjoy trying our products as much as we have enjoyed making them for you all. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co. We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses can tell and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website holly.co. What have you got to lose? Get recording. I can't wait to have a listen. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. What I find really exciting is this shift that I'm seeing, and I think you mentioned it before, small versus big. And I see all these smaller brands popping into mainstream supermarkets, such as Waitrose and Sainsbury's. And, you know, you were one of those people who led the way. Do you think that's going to continue? Yeah, I absolutely think it's going to continue. And I I kind of referenced it earlier about... Uh, the dynamics going on in supermarkets and firstly consumers more from that side are being much more demanding so you can more easily get in touch with brands and challenge them on whether you agree with their ingredients and you know we get people that email us and tweet at us and instagram at us about you know our products and ask questions and they're incredibly curious which i love because it just means that people are really engaged with your brand but also more than that they really care about what they're going in their putting in their bodies and you know year on year people are think becoming healthier but what i love about that movement of i guess i'm talking about kind of independent brands that are kind of bringing something new is that from a consumer perspective they genuinely want to kind of discover something new and i think supermarkets are much more willing to accept that actually they need to offer more choice and um and i guess my second point on that is that i think what's interesting now is that people think of being healthier or or eating better as not just like taking calories out but actually it's more about eating a balanced diet and looking at foods that are more nutrient rich and I think you can see more and more kind of brands introducing that so again think from that perspective it's going to continue but I think there are huge swathes of kind of new brands launching every year it does make it more competitive to, to some extent on the flip reverse of that But I also just think it's amazing just how innovative they are. Like, there are some incredible products. Like, the other day I saw an amazing brand called Kinda Co who are creating dairy-free cheeses that genuinely taste as good as you'd eat, like, feta and, you know, all, all sorts of other things. And I just find that amazing that people have these new ideas all the time and that there's always a new take. So there's always space. If you've got a good idea, there's always space in the supermarket, so long as you've got something that you feel distinctive and generally offers something new and interesting. And that's what you've got to work on finding. Do you think it's going to become easier for small to be stocked on the high street and in supermarkets? Yes and no. So there are some supermarkets that are really backing independent brands, like Sainsbury's are a great example. However, um, I would also say that I've found it quite interesting looking at how a lot of brands now are trying to avoid it as well. So building their D2C models, you'd, you'd normally kind of see it in your world and, and what you've done on Not on the High Street for more like... So you mean direct to customers? Yeah, direct yeah. to cu- customers. So subscription models becoming quite popular. You know, if you were a drinks brand, you might send a subscription of, you know, 24 cans a month to consumers and that's how they they kind of build a different model but also the likes of kind of Amazon and things like that are becoming bigger players in this world so um, you could choose alternative routes which might also help in terms of the amount of kind of space in store because that's the main challenge for the buyers these days is that 
you know, they've got so many amazing brands to choose from, but they do still have the limited amount of space. Yes. And that's the what... physical space that they've got to yeah. promote. And I believe there's a, it's a, it's an art, isn't it? I mean, I don't know this world, but there's all the which aisle, which shelf, yes. how deep, how many skews, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. There's a real, you don't just walk into a supermarket and actually everything you see is just random. Yeah. No, it is, there's a science. There is. And what I, I always laugh at it because when you win a supermarket everyone goes oh my god amazing like congratulations and you know they think you're just made and that's it like you can just sail up into the sunset (laughs) but it's it's when you're in the supermarkets and it's really hard because if your product isn't working hard enough for the buyer they have no problem with saying sorry there's three months notice you're out and that is you know your listing gone and you've got to fight your way on like fight your shelf space and stay there so it's, um... I just I just pictured and I know you didn't do this or maybe you did when Sophie and I wrote a book and we we were I think Manchester Station and we saw our book in mm. W H Smith but it was at position sixteen yeah and so all we would do anytime we passed we just moved it to position one okay. in every single bookshop so I just pictured you winning that Sainsbury's contract and then just doing this round robin email if you go to a Sainsbury's you must buy five. <laughs> pots of nut butter is that right did you yeah you did yeah and then I still to this day like my mum I swear spends (laughs) when she does a shop a good hour by that shelf telling people to buy my products instead of that one and moving things around like yeah it never leaves you and you can never go into the supermarket these days without doing like a quick whip round (laughs) making sure the shelf looks good and then leaving turning all the pots around making it oh my goodness what can the high street do or supermarkets do to make it easier, well, if you look back to your journey now, what could they have done to make it easier for you? I think for me, it, it's more about a time thing. And I feel for them because buyers are so time poor. But it's, it's mainly just about trying to give you time with them so that you can understand what they really want from you. Just make it really clear and upfront what their priorities are so that you can help them. Because, you know, we've, we've had situations where we've been, you know, not had the right range on shelf and it's really affected our performance because we haven't been delivering what they're being measured on. So I think, you know, I personally think it's about making it easier to understand exactly what the model is, like how does how do supermarkets work and understanding operationally how you make it work within those retailers. And that, that I think, is more about how can we make it easier from a kind of, like, founder-to-founder basis of lessons learned because I don't think that, they can fix everything. I think something is about sharing the knowledge and information across um, so that other people don't make the same mistakes you have. Yes, yes. Um, because I do think they're, they're actually get doing quite a good job themselves and they're under a lot of pressure. But I think it is probably more about how do we make sure information is shared across you know the sector from founders to founders within the food and drink industry do you think you know could they create cash flow funds could they create bursaries these supermarkets I think they do want to have small in their big premises and and it's great for them to have new brands and to also be seen to be uh, more caring about what they're producing I go on holiday to Norfolk and in the local town where I stay there's a budgeons and in Mm. that store owned and I don't know if it's across everywhere but they have local produce they have a whole section that the farmers actually bring in their products and I was just thinking gosh it was so supporting the independents or all of those people in that community and so making the supermarkets just feel like they are listening more do you see that coming through or those being ideas that could maybe be adopted within other supermarkets or larger high street shops absolutely and I think like that rain like localized ranging is which basically what you're mentioning there is is such a great initiative because if you are a local producer and you know that in the northwest you've got a great stronghold of advocates it'd be better just to start off ranging in those I don't know Tesco stores rather than anything anywhere else around the UK because that's where it's going to work and you can prove the concept And I do think there's something great about starting smaller and not necessarily saying, right, I want to be in 1,700 Tesco stores, that actually starting in 100 and and scaling from there is much more effective and you'll have a better kind of rate of sale. And I think one of the other things that supermarkets could definitely do is just access to the data. Unfortunately, 
it's really expensive to buy the information about what your products are doing. Oh, I so, didn't even realise that's a thing. Yeah, so you, you end so up... So they don't tell you? No, so you have to buy the data to understand what's going on in store. And, and obviously, if you're a big U- Unilever brand, uh, you're buying every bit of data you can get your hands on. But as a small brand in that space, you have no insight as to exactly what's going on. And it's unbelievably expensive so I think for me it's like how I mean I'm not saying that they need to give away everything but how can they give support and provide it either at discount level or you know some way so that you can start to understand so you can actually make improve. their sales yeah, yeah and it's exactly it make is, their sales exactly better. yeah so I think that'll probably be one of the things that I'd want to see changing and 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 on that you just touched on it and what I was going to talk to you about now was what do you think are the main things that small businesses face when competing with the big brands I mean, information for, for sure is one of those things because they'll be telling the buyer a story about your brand as to why you shouldn't be there and you can't have the, you don't have even access to the information to argue the, the other way. So that, I think, is definitely one thing. But ultimately, marketing budget is what is the biggest challenge. You have a fraction of what they're spending both in-store but also out-of-store in kind of bigger brand moments. And, and that will be the hurdle that you'll always come up against. But... I kind of like it because I, I do think as a small brand you've got, and I'm sure you've heard this before with other people, but you've got such a kind of armour of tools that you can get access to that if you can leverage it, you can be so effective. Um, we've, we've done all sorts of things from partnerships with Nike, which we, we didn't pay for. We, we worked with them because there was like a nice relationship and kind of connection to how we could help them with an event so a run called we run london it was ten thousand women running their first 10k and i got in touch with the events manager there and she loved it because it links back to my story i used to be a very strong runner and i started up the business partly because of that and she just felt there was a good connection with that and and the product would really fit for a kind of post-run fueling so it just, I think if you can find ways of being able to kind of work and kind of leverage, so this was an amazing event, we sampled 10,000 people with toast and nut butter, and yeah, I mean, that's the sort of thing that a bigger brand would pay an arm and a leg for, so there are so many little wins that you can have in that sense that you um, can leverage as a smaller brand, and, and I think it comes down to the fact that you're authentic, you have a story to tell, um, you've got a product that you're proud of and that you know if you can get it into people's hands that they'll love it. And you're a cool brand as well, like you're fresh and you're, you're new, so you come with none of the kind well, of Well, it's baggage. David and Goliath, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it's, I love that element that, of it. Um, the secret armoury that we all have. Yeah. That on low days, we don't believe we actually possess it. Yes. But then when you realise that it is, they can't buy the story, can they? They exactly. can't buy the brand, they can't buy the ethos of it. Totally. And actually also on a positive note you know our spending habits are drastically changing you know millennials especially are choosing to spend their money with small purpose-led founder businesses rather than corporate brands and just a few numbers but 50% of millennials so that's 16 to 34 years of age are willing to pay more to support a small business versus let's say 38% of generation x and 42% of baby boomers it's why I always talk about purpose-led businesses or businesses with fantastic stories and um, you're good for the environment you're a woman in business you've got all of these things that are making your brand relevant to people but what I would say is that when you're talking with a retailer or a big supermarket the tendency that you have and I've, I've been there and I've done it before which is to pretend like you're a really big brand because you want to you know convince the buyer that you're really good and that, that they should list your products but the, the trick is to make sure you keep talking small. Like We try and connect back to the, our story and how we started and that we're a team of 12 people. and Be proud of the fact that we're not this big monolithic brand because not only do you not want them to think that you have loads of cash in your back pocket, but also you want them to feel part of the journey. And it comes back to kind of what I said about the factories. It's, it's kind of similar with buyers as much as you can try and get them on board. And, and you might see what they can give you under the under the table that, that you know they would normally charge for. It's quite astonishing, actually, what you can swing when you actually just try and talk about why you're doing what you're doing. And what other things have you, in this sort of bubble of being a small business and being authentic, uh, etc., what other things in terms of marketing have you played to that small business strength? Of- Strongholds are certainly our social media is is one of our biggest assets. We've got 
over 140,000 followers across our different platforms, but Instagram's our strongest. And and it's it's been amazing, actually. I mean, we do small tactics around kind of making sure that the content's great and that we're posting relevant things and we work with influencers, but we've never paid for any of it. And I'd say that what I found, particularly we're working, working with influencers, that, you know, I'm kind of not so different from them. Like, I'm a young woman trying to grow my business in the same way that they're growing their own business and their own brand through their own profile. So, you know, really early on, like a lot of the time I'd go for coffees with some of them and not because I wanted any commercial benefit from them, but we're sharing a similar journey. And I think that's the sort of thing that, particularly when we work with influencers, that a lot of them feel like they've been, they've grown with us as well. Um, and PR, you mentioned it as well, but it has been an absolutely amazing asset, partly because I genuinely feel really passionate about encouraging women to consider and if not start a business and I think that the only way or the thing that I found most inspiring was reading about other women or or generally businesses that I started that I was like god if they can do it I, I can definitely give it a go like it's not like you're you know running a country you're just starting a nut butter brand and it's that reality check that you get from it but yeah so PR I think is a great way to get your story out there and the media space that we get for our brand versus, say, if we had to buy it is in the million. Don't knock the fact that you can just get exposure organically by sending some nice products to a magazine or whatever it is. It's 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 so true. I remember back at Not on the High Street when we started, we had no budget. And so we just used the power of Sophie and myself to gain this PR because that's all we could afford. And we would take our bags around with products and at Christmas time we would make sure we would send products out and maybe personalised and they really, really connected because we were doing something that was well thought through, yeah. but also we were giving them a story and were very, very open to help understand, well, what were they writing about or how could you sort of fit into what they were looking for? And I always think that PR is this mystical magic because I don't know if PR sells things directly no. instantly and I think sometimes people want that to happen you know I'm in the paper and suddenly, your sales uh, and suddenly the sales go through the roof and it mm. doesn't happen but what it does do is it builds this wonderful foundation for the long term for yeah. a business yeah definitely and I think it's always that tension between longer term brand building and tactical stuff that's going to get the job done in the instant I, I would say one other thing if you are if you have a food brand there's something to say about just doing stuff that is so basic and uh, like for instance we do go and blitz stores so the whole team will go out and fix all the shelves in Sainsbury's and make sure we've got the perfect look on shelf because if you're looking good on shelf you'll probably sell well and I've heard you talk about this wonderful team actually Uh, how have you hired and created this team and as you scale how do you think about that and the power of being small and 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 not scaling too fast or too big but actually you're scaling the business so you need to keep up what's your thoughts around that yeah and scaling the team is probably at the moment the thing that kind of weighs a little bit on my head is exactly those points I I probably don't have the answers for you because I think I'm going through it at the moment but in terms of how our brand our kind of team and culture has grown like I mean a lot of it has been about finding people that are fluid in the way that they can work across loads of different areas and it's an attitude thing more than anything you know a lot of our team are really quite young have actually grown up through the business as well might be in their first job they started as an intern a few of our marketing girls have have actually moved up like that and actually have learned and grown with the business as we've grown but it's so much about like the a wanting to work for the business and again cannot tell you the amount of interviews I've had where people have never even bothered to look at our products in store check out what flavors we have it's incredible Um, isn't it yeah and it's soul destroying because you think why are you even here you're wasting both our time so I think for me it's all about really center checking do they genuinely want to work for this business do they know what a startup really is not just this halo mystical thing that people talk about and have they got an attitude that they're willing to kind of 
really give it some, particularly in the early days when they know they're not going to just be working on sales. They'll be, you know, working the Taste of London stand and then also delivering some products over across town to uh, someone in a PR uh, office, whatever. So it's just those people that are flexible and kind of enthusiastic. Uh, and then I guess now we, we do have slightly more experience in the room. So we have started to build out kind of key people within the business. And I think it's not bringing too many people with too many years experience. I still, when we are hiring, say, for a head of marketing or a head of finance, it's would rather someone, again, had maybe slightly fewer years of experience but uh, have a hunger to grow themselves and a hunger to kind of be on that journey, I think, is kind of more important. Well, what you're saying is it's music to my ears. So I'm really glad that you have that in your mind mm. because it is one of the things I can ask at the moment because we, we, we've got now a deli and part restaurant and, and coffee shop and, and all the things that we're doing with Holly & Co is, mm. are you willing to put some marigolds on? Yes. Right, and if they look at you, like, you you know, that's it. Because, yeah. you know, I, I can spend definitely a good 30 minutes a day with marigolds on. And yeah. if I'm doing it, you're going to do it. Totally. So And so it is that attitude thing, isn't mm. it? It's that entrepreneurial spirit that yeah. um, they're willing to do anything as yeah. long as it's to help this business. And what's the future for Pippinut? Future for Pippinut? Um, Just that little thing, you know. <laughs> that little thing, the next 10 years. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, we have... Yeah, you mentioned at the start, really big ambitions. But, I mean, the numbers for me are exciting. But the things that really get me going is just the thought of Pippin Up being in, say, you know, everyone's kitchen cupboards. Like, we're not nowhere near that yet. But, you know, for me, it's exciting to feel that our brand is, is becoming more and more well-known. And, I, you know... I can't wait for the moment where I don't have to explain what Pippinut is to to every other person. For me as well, it's about growing a brand that isn't just a nut butter brand, but more holistic. So a number of different products and different categories, how we can essentially own nuts in, to some extent and, and have that in lots of different spaces in store and kind of build a brand that's more about choosing a healthier option, the better for you option and celebrating food in that sense and encouraging people to genuinely enjoy the food that they have on their plates. So what I think now is that we're very much focused on the UK and building our brand here and that gets me really excited so yeah well, well I see. can see it in the, in the huge <laughs> smile across your face and tell me uh, I use the analogy that running a business and I know you're going to 100% agree with this is like being on a crazy roller coaster mm-hmm. high 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 and then lots of lows yeah can you share with me your greatest low so far Yeah, there have been quite a few to choose from. I think one particular low was, I remember a couple of years ago, we we had a a disagreement with a factory and we actually, they stopped supplying us for a, a couple of weeks, which if anyone's experienced that feeling of not having product to sell when you've got demand, it is awful uh, gut-wrenching experience which did resolve itself thankfully but it was a really difficult period of time where you haven't got the certainty of supply which is the lifeblood of your business and again comes back to where I think you have to make sure you focus on the foundations of your business things like your supply chain and cash flow should never ever overlook it because all the other stuff will fall down otherwise so yeah, I sometimes think I talk too much about sometimes the, those elements of the business, but I cannot emphasise how important they are. And and the greatest high so far? I'll, can I have two? Yeah. Cool. I think one of the greatest highs was the first product that rolled off the production line because it was two years of like hard graft to get it to that stage. And I, really, it was like, well, I haven't got kids, but I can imagine it's the feeling of like euphoria when you when you finally have your baby. That was what it was for me. Amazing feeling and because it kind of made the business real. Uh, I think the second one, I think, was definitely our first seeing it on Sainsbury's because that was other stores were amazing but for me that was like the translation of what I wanted which was a national brand and I was like we've got there or we've at least started now on on really getting our brand to kind of the national scale and that was a really amazing feeling seeing it in Sainsbury's and um, 
arranging that shelf. I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. And something I've started asking guests is, who would you personally recommend that I interviewed? Who's inspired you? Yeah. So I would go for another female founder because I do relate, I guess, most to that. So I, I'd, and I'd recommend you speak to Amelia Harvey from The Collective Dairy if you haven't already. No. Partly because... They are literally the best yogurts you can possibly eat. I don't know if you buy them, but they're incredible. So good from that perspective. But Amelia's got an amazing story. She's grown an incredible brand in the UK with the Collective Dairy, but has also had some probably, I think, one of the hardest things that that I've ever heard and experienced as she's grown her business. She sadly lost her co-founder about three years ago. He had a, um, a heart attack, very sadly, and I just think that's an amazing thing. She's continuing to strive and grow the business in, in sort of in his name. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, in terms wow. of serious, tough times that she must have experienced with that, I think is should be applauded, really. Oh. So she's an amazing woman. Thank um, you. Incredible uh, inspiration. And Thank I you. respect her very much. Thank you, generally. It's just just huge congratulations. You know, it's a lonely old job being a founder <laughs> and leading a business. And so a lot of small businesses and going into this industry will look to you as someone who is paving the way, who is driving small into now not so small with your passion and you're a woman and you've raised money and you're you're doing it. And so I just wanted to thank you so much for just being you. I'm going to now hand over to you at this part where I've asked you to prepare a letter to your younger self, the younger Pip. Uh, in all seriousness, thank you, Pip, for being you. Oh, thank you. Well, I've loved being on this podcast thank you for having me okay dear pip good luck handing in your notice today at your job in that moment it will take you away from the security of a regular paycheck the warmth and comfort of your flat in north london it'll start you on a different path to your friends and family a path that you may find difficult to observe in the early years as your friends go off and get married buy their first house or start growing their own families and and you've worried that you've made the wrong choice. This business will at times bring you both ecstatic joy and sense of pride that you never thought possible, but also plummeting lows. But I tell you now that this act that you're about to do will be the best thing you ever do. In the next few years, as you fumble your way through building Pippin Nut, you'll learn more about who you really are and the potential that is truly held within you than you can ever imagine. You'll expose yourself to the, so many exciting, spine-tingling experiences, rub shoulders with some of the, your heroes and become a true expert in your own way as to how to build a loved food brand. Put simply, you will love running this business. I know that right now you don't even know what you don't know and it can feel that as a young 25-year-old woman that you have no place at the kitchen table to be starting this business. Imposter syndrome will plague you at points, but believe me when I say this, that naivety is a great thing and not something you should worry yourself about. Keep asking those obvious questions and reaching out to people for help. This skill and aptitude to show your vulnerability and garner support from those around you will become one of your biggest assets and will mean you'll find solutions to your problems at every step. Whilst your visions for Pippinup is to make it a national brand and it will thrill you to see that through food you can change people's lives, help people live healthier, improve their relationship with food. This vision and purpose will be a guiding light, but a word of warning, try not to forget about the small things as you think so big. Most importantly, keep focused on the product. This is your most powerful asset along with your brand. So always look to improve what you have before moving to something new. The devil is in the detail here and be uncompromising in that sense. Try not to spread yourself too thinly when it comes to building this business. This I know will be a struggle as you want to strive to push forwards and become impatient to create new things. But making sure to strengthen what you've got and expand from your core products will be important to allow you to build in the long run. And with that growth, your team will also build and you'll realise that you can no longer do everything yourself and become reliant on others. Putting trust in others will be essential and be careful bringing people into your business. Make sure that they buy into what you're trying to create. It may at times take you a long time to find those people. This fledgling team will become a bigger part of your focus in years to come and it will, will also become 
your proudest part of the business. Their passion and hard work will astound you every day and never stop being grateful to them for their contributions. A thank you really does go a long way. At points, you may question what kind of leader you are, but keeping true to who you are and never think you can become a, a larger-than-life character to be inspirational. This will come across as awkward and insincere. And finally, whilst your determined streaks runs through the core of who you are and will be a bigger asset in digging deep and never taking no for an answer, but Pip, do try not to be so punishing on yourself when things don't go quite to plan. These mistakes and failures are a rite of passage and need to be lived to be learned and something which all business owners experience, big or small. You are not unique in that sense and therefore should not put so much pressure on yourself to achieve and be perfect. So when you walk out the office today and tell your boss you're quitting to start a nut butter business, don't feel embarrassed or play down what it is that you're about to go and do. Lift your head up high and believe in yourself because trust me, you're on to a good thing. Good luck. <laughs> it's quite an emotional thing to write, actually. It is. I don't know if you find that. It's it like, is. oh God, I'm going to cry as I read it out. You know what? You say that your greatest asset is your product. And there's something from the moment I met you and your beautiful, huge smile <laughs> is I see a lot of myself in you, actually. Mm. And... Um, I just want to remind you that the greatest asset Pepper Nut has is you. Aww, and never forget that, that you are the Duracell battery of this business mm. and it's all down to you. And so I'm just so glad to have met you today. Oh, and you I, believe, I, really I believe enjoy. we're going to be in, yeah, in contact now for many a year to yeah. come. And I, I cheer you on. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thanks, NatWest, again for sponsoring this podcast. It's great to partner with an organisation that believes in empowering people in business. That's why they developed the NatWest Business Hub. It's full of information, tips and insights to help business owners meet their goals. Go to natwestbusinesshub.com to get started. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations of Inspiration. I want as many people as possible to believe that they can build a business doing what they love. So could I ask a favour? If you like what you're listening to, would you rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider? It will help others find this podcast and may just be the inspiration they need to follow their dreams. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come